Have you ever been wrong? I was counting, already this year, I've been wrong twice. And uh, Trish isn't here, is she? Okay. She knows the truth. No, I bring that up because I remember being part of, uh, I've told this before in some detail, but I was part, as a youth pastor, I was part of a youth group. I led a youth group here in the mid-80s. And uh, when the youth group was handed off to me, it was in tremendous shape. About a year and a half after I started leading that youth group, everything went south. Things began to unravel. Kids made choices that shocked me, took me off guard, and I made decisions as a leader that shocked them. And, and it was just a time of turmoil. I remember for about a year and a half, I didn't look forward to those times of gathering like I had before. There's just that, that sinking feeling. And, and there's something that happens when relationships begin to unravel that is just painful. And I, I was thinking about that this week as we come to this passage in John 13 that we're going to look at today. So we do this every Sunday, but do you mind turning to John 13? We're going to look at verses 18 through 38 this week. And while you're turning there, if you didn't already know this, we are spending most of the year in John's gospel. You know, there's 66 books of the Bible. John's about three-fourths of the way back, by the way. So if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're looking at John 13. There's red Bibles in the seat rack in front of you in case you didn't bring a Bible. We'd love it. Even if you don't consider yourself a church person or a God person yet, if you'd put your finger on the text and follow along, I think it'll be beneficial for you. And we're going to look at this passage today. But what I hope you'll see is that as we look at these encounters with Jesus, as we saw last week, these next few weeks, we're going to look at encounters that Jesus had specifically with his disciples, his 12 disciples. And um, this one, we started last week in John 13. This is the last night of Jesus' life before he's crucified. Now, the first 12 chapters of John cover three years of Jesus' ministry. But now John slows down. It's like he's saying, look, in these next few chapters, I don't want you to miss what Jesus taught us, what Jesus showed us on that last night and as he went to the cross. And so he, he shares in tremendous detail. And so we're going to spend time in these next few chapters. And if you've never read them, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, unbelievable. But one of the things you need to know about that is that the last night was not a happy night for the disciples. It was a heavy night. And uh, it was a time when their relationships as a group began to unravel before their very eyes. So if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is that at this meal that we're talking about, this last meal Jesus has with his disciples before the cross, at this meal, life for Jesus' disciples begins to unravel. It begins to get very confusing. It feels like chaos is winning the day. And again, uh, in the middle of all this, there is this tremendous discovery that we're going to make today that Jesus knows all about the chaos. He knows all about what it's like when life unravels, and it's not that he's not affected by it, but here's what I want you to see today. If you're following along, Jesus tells the truth to fortify their trust in him. 
Jesus tells the truth to fortify their trust in him. Now, here's what's interesting to me. I just mentioned that this was a heavy night for the disciples. It was a heavy night for Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew better than anybody. And he knew what was going to happen with their group. And so this was very heavy. And Jesus could have made this whole night about him. But instead he makes it about, I care about you. I want to make sure that I do everything I can to care for you, to strengthen your faith in me, to strengthen your trust so that when everything shakes, you'll still have solid ground. Wow, what incredible love. That kind of thoughtfulness. And that's what the disciples are also gripped by, is his thoughtfulness. Last week, we saw that he washed their feet. He cared about them, not just himself. And he's going to do some more of that this week. He's going to show how much he loves his disciples, even when the chaos seems to reign. So I want to ask if you'd pray with me. Then we're going to make our way through John 13. And as we do, I hope you'll see that Jesus makes two predictions that strengthen their trust in him. And he also gives a command that seems out of place at first, but we're going to explain how it really fits in perfectly in what Jesus was saying. Let's pray. Lord, I know that there are some people that relate to the word unraveling and the word chaos right now. And I pray that you would minister to them through your word. I know there are people here that may not know you yet, and they're wondering what to think about you, and I pray you'll guide them. I'm glad they're here. And I pray you'll help those of us that have walked with you for a while, that we will not get careless or cocky, but that we'll learn the things you want us to learn this morning as we gather around you, your word, and together. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at these two predictions that Jesus makes to his disciples, the two predictions and the command, and I'll start in verses 18 through 21. The first prediction is listed here. So here's what he says. I'm not referring to all of you. Now already he's starting to say, our group is about to change. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting Psalm 41.9, written by King David a thousand years before. Jesus says, now this is being fulfilled tonight. Wow, that's an incredible thing. And and we're not used to this way of thinking, but in the Middle East, when you shared your bread with someone, it was a sign of friendship and deep fellowship. So this verse that David wrote said, the person that was so close to me, we shared bread, has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, he has turned on me, he has you know, stepped on me when I was down. He has, he's thrown me under the bus. Jesus says, that's being fulfilled now. Like, Like, Jesus, like, you could have grabbed a lot of Bible verses. Why this one? Then he goes on and says this. I am telling you, in fact, I've listed this verse in the gray box in the notes. Would you mind reading verse 19 with me out loud? I, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. He goes on in verse 20 and says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. He's referring to these guys. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, 
Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. There's that phrase again. One of you is going to betray me. So if you're following along in the notes, here's prediction. Number one, and we find in these verses, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And we see that in verse 21, Jesus is not able to talk about this without being troubled in his spirit. I don't know if you know, but when Christianity came on the scene, when Jesus arrived on the earth, Greek thinking was predominant. Some of us have studied Greek thinkers. And one of the things about Greek thinking in those days is that their understanding of God is that God did not feel anything because if he felt anything, that would affect him. And God can't be affected or God can't still be God. And so the Greeks thought that way. But Christ comes on the scene and says, that's not the way God is. God is affected by things that affect us. God is affected by decisions and choices people make. It doesn't alter his sovereignty, but he is affected. And therefore we see here that Jesus is saying, look, I can't talk about this easily. One of you who I love will betray me. Some of you know what that's like. Somebody that you were close to, somebody in your group, someone in your family, someone in your marriage, someone in your team made a decision to betray you. And when that happened, you found yourself saying, I don't know if I like this, this loving people. Jesus made a choice to love, and when he did, he made himself vulnerable. That's an amazing reality. C.S. Lewis helped me understand this years ago. To love it all, he writes, is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And Jesus said, I'm going to love even the one who betrays me, and it will affect me. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to worship Jesus the rest of my life. The fact that he would love like that, the fact that he would make himself vulnerable, his ability to identify with us on that level is profound to me. And he makes this prediction because he's not just blowing smoke. He says, this is going to happen in our group. You know, the real test of a prediction, don't you? It's whether or not it comes true. And before eight hours are over, this will happen. And the disciples will see it with their own eyes. And they will know whether or not Jesus knows what he's talking about. If you're following along, what... I want you to see is that what happens next is that in the chaos, following along in the notes here, in the chaos, 
John, the author of this gospel, one of the disciples, John leans on Jesus and asks, Lord, who is it? He leans on Jesus and asks, Lord, who is it? Let me read these verses, 22 through 25, and then explain them a little bit. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Now, just try and put yourself, your imagination this night. Jesus is saying at dinner there, he's going, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. The very next thing he has happen is he's troubled in his spirit, but they're at a loss. They, they could not be more blindsided. They could not, what? Who is, what do you mean? And it's this total confusion, this total unraveling for them. And then verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Let me stop. We said at the very beginning of this series that the person that writes this gospel never once mentions his own name in the gospel. Now, there is a John in John's gospel, but it's not John the author. It's John the Baptist, the one that prepared the way for Jesus. This is John the disciple writing this, and he uses a technique of writing that is fascinating. Rather than ever mention himself, he refers to himself as the other disciple or, in several cases, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why did he do that? Some people have thought he's boasting, kind of like this. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Na, 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 na. And that's how it has that kind of sound at first, doesn't it? Jesus had so changed John, John didn't think of himself that way. Instead, it was more like this. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus knows me like he knows me, and I know me like I know me, and he decided to love me. I'm the disciple. And that becomes the proudest thing I can carry around the rest of my life in awe. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he wasn't saying that Jesus didn't love their disciples. He's just going, it's one of the ways that I want to always be understood is that his grace and love changed my life. So it says, one of them near Jesus was reclining next to Jesus was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So notice how Peter strategically uses this because evidently Jesus... Uh, Peter wasn't right next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, they kind of used code, and said, ask him which one he means, because none of us know. So like, find out the clue, the answer, the riddle. Leaning back, verse 25, against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread. Remember the prophecy, the prediction he just made? from Psalm 41.9, is the one I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And here's the interesting thing. At the Passover meal, there was what was called a sop. You took bread and you dipped it into this oil and herb, mixed herbs, and then you ate it. It was part of the remembering the bitterness of Egypt and leaving Egypt and having the hope. And so he took this sop and he hands it to Judas. Now, as far as we can tell, only John knows this because he whispers this to him. And so when that happens, it's an interesting thing. But most of us, because we are not, because we didn't grow up in the Middle East, because we don't know some of the traditions in Jesus' day, it's hard for us to jump over those barriers, those, those things that seem so long ago. 
So what I wanted to do is, just like last week where we demonstrated washing the feet, I thought it might be helpful if you saw what it might have looked like. Because here's, here's the challenge for us. When we eat, we most of the time sit down. Some of us stand up. I, I stand up to sink sometimes and eat if no one's around. Uh, but for the most part, we sit in chairs. And what makes this more difficult is that Leonardo da Vinci hasn't helped us on this at all. With his incredible painting of the Last Supper, which is rich in artistic ways that I'm not going to in any way criticize, except to say he was wrong. <laughs> he was wrong because they weren't sitting down. The New Testament tells us they were reclining. Reclining is different than sitting in a chair. Now, last week when I washed Kurt's feet, I only had him sit in a chair for simplicity because I knew this week I was going to explain to you how Jesus actually did it. So I've asked my friends, Don and Greg, to come out and help me demonstrate this reclining thing so that you might appreciate this scene a little bit more. <coughs> now, I've asked uh, Greg to be Judas. <laughs> I've asked Don to be John. And I thought it was only appropriate that I be Jesus. <laughs> Just kidding. So here's what happens. They were reclining uh, that night, it says, and they were probably on low couches, uh, better than the floor we're going to be on. But they were sitting and they were eating this meal, probably in a circle or in a U shape, so they could look at each other and be close. So we'll get on the floor and we'll try and show you how I think this probably went down based on the study. When they reclined, uh, scholars tell us that they reclined on their left elbow, and therefore their right hand was free to eat the bread and to drink uh, together. And so when they're together, Jesus has just said this, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. They're all going, what? Who is it? So Peter, somewhere around the table, gets John's attention and says, ask him who it is. The Bible says is that John leans back against Jesus. Now, this is creepy, I know, to some of you, okay? And for those that's not creepy, I'm concerned for you. But when he leaned back, do you notice what this does? It, it's close proximity. Do you notice how close they are? And so Jesus could whisper and say, it is the one whom I dip in the bread and give the bread to. He's able to whisper. Then, what happens is, as he goes back to his place, Jesus reached the table, and most scholars believe that Judas was either immediately to Jesus' left or very close, because when he took the bread, he was able to do this. Now, what's interesting to me is that if you study this whole scene, the person sitting to the left of the host was considered the most honored guest. Not only because of what we just saw, but guess who Jesus would lean back against so that he could have a conversation like this? Judas. And that night, something was happening that we can't fully appreciate except through our imagination. So would you give uh, Don and Greg a hand? Thank you very much. Now, part of what makes that creepy for us is that we're not used to that kind of proximity. Uh, when I was in college, I took some psychology classes, and one of the things they taught us is in the United States, the 
personal space for most Americans is 18 inches. Once you get inside that 18 inches, you better be invited. <laughs> because it's just, it's, and, and they would show how people would go like this if people got too close. But that's not the way different people think and act around the world. If you go to Arab countries, people are like really up close and very comfortable with it. In the Middle East, proximity is a completely different sense of space. Also, in terms of human touch, it's sometimes misunderstood when we read the scriptures because now there's all kinds of inappropriate touching and things that goes on in our country that's even accepted sometimes. But in Jesus' day, alike, it was, where, by the way, very similar when I went to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is often thought of as a Middle Eastern kind of mindset in Africa. And so one of the things that I learned in Ethiopia is there is almost no homosexuality at all. It's, it's definitely looked down upon, and it's definitely something that could get you in serious trouble with the law. But what there is all over Ethiopia, there are men walking down streets holding hands. There are men with their arms around each other, and they, they, have, they mean nothing sexual and inappropriate about it. To them, this is one of those things that this is part of being friends, brotherly. And I told you that when I came back from Ethiopia, one of the things that I had to get used to is that in one week, I hugged more people and was hugged by more people than all of last year. There's just a completely different sense of space. So again, when this moment happened between John and Jesus, something happened to John. I think he heard Jesus' heart. I think he listened to Jesus' heart. I think that proximity marked him for the rest of his life. How do I, why do I think that? Before the Gospel of John ends, in John 21, 20, look at what he says. Look what he writes up here on the screen. This is later on, and Peter has just been told that he's going to actually lay down his life for Jesus later in his life. Peter turned around and saw behind him the other disciple whom Jesus loved. There's that idea again. The one who had leaned close to Jesus at the meal and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? John's saying, I was there. I was the one that leaned back against Jesus. I will never forget that. Wow. And what I hope you see is that in the chaos, John leans on Jesus. Next thing I want you to see is that in the darkest night, God is still on time keeping his word. Let me read verses 27 through 33. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Notice that no matter how much Jesus loved him, he'd washed his feet, he'd given him the honored position at the table, he had shared his bread, a sign of intimate fellowship. It didn't take. It didn't change Judas' mind. Again and again, Jesus reaches out, appeals with love to Judas. Judas is into Judas. Judas is into his own plan. He's unfazed by Jesus' love. I used to think that no one could be unfazed by Jesus' love. It's simply not true. Jesus decides to love anyway. Verse 28 Oh, excuse me, Jesus says to him, verse 27, what you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. In other words, run your errand and do it now. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Notice Jesus doesn't blow Judas' cover. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And here's the phrase I want you to see, friends. Four words. And it was night. Night. What do you think of when you think of night? 
Was John just giving a little detail and say, by the way, it was nighttime. Next. What was he saying? It was night. I will never forget this night. It was more night than normal. It was dark. It was confusing. It was hard to see. It was night. But notice this if you're following along in the notes. In the darkest night, God's still on time, keeping his word. He goes on in verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, this is a very tender way of talking. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. In the darkest night, God's still on time, keeping his word. What he says next is he says, look, you know what time it is? It's time for me to be glorified. Most of the time we think glorified, we go, everything's getting better. That's not what Jesus means. He means, now's the time when I glorify God the most in a way that no one would expect. I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to accomplish more by dying ever be accomplished. I will be the sacrifice for sin for the whole world and it will glorify the Father and the Father will glorify me for it. It will bring great glory to God. But it's not the way we would take. It's the darkest night when he's talking about this. But he also said scripture's being fulfilled. My predictions will be fulfilled. I'm right on time. God may look like he's late. God may look like he's lost in the darkness. God may look like he doesn't know what's going on, but there is always another layer, friends, where God is doing something that we may not be able to see. And he says, you can trust me. I know what I'm talking about. And then he says this thing that rips their hearts out even more. I'm going away. I'm only going to be with you a little longer. If you ever had someone that you cherished their friendship so much, you loved being with them so much that when they said, we're only going to have a little bit more time together, you went, no! That's how they were feeling. That's how they were feeling. And that leads to the second prediction that I hope you'll see, and that's prediction number two. If you're following along in the notes, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me, Jesus says. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. I'm going to talk about this more next week. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Remember, he's the guy that had climbed out of the boat and walked on the water. This is not someone who's just throwing out cheap phrases. He loves Jesus. Different than Judas, he loves Jesus. He's not saying this stuff because he doesn't care about Jesus. He loves him. Verse 38, the problem is that in his love he's blind. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Three times. This is interesting. Jesus says, now in this prediction, this is very practical. You may think that God only works in the high skies and stuff like that. Jesus works right down on ground level. Jude, I mean, uh, Peter, before the rooster crows, you remember that bird that makes that annoying sound? In fact, here's how it sounds. Before this happens in the morning, you will have already denied that you even know me three times. You're not ready to lay your life down for me. You, you, you're not reading reality correctly. And Jesus is so practical. There was no way to miss that prediction. When that rooster crowed three times, Peter, I mean, when he crowed, 
Peter either denied him three times or he hadn't. It was crystal. And the scriptures show us that he did. And the Bible says is that when he did that, the third time, the rooster crowed, and evidently Peter was far enough away that Jesus could look at him. Luke 22. And when he looked at Peter, Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Oh my goodness. Prediction number two came painfully true. Sandwiched in between these incredible two predictions, though, is a command. And when I was studying this this week, I thought to myself, you know, I don't, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Have you ever had that when you're reading the Bible sometimes? And I had that, that sense. Because see, here it is, verse 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men, everyone, the whole world, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the command if you're following along. As I have loved you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. Why does Jesus say this? Notice that Peter doesn't necessarily hear it very well because in verse 36 he goes, Lord, where are you going? So it's not like he goes, Okay, got that command, Jesus? No, he's back to, hey, I'm still thinking about you saying you're going away. So it didn't all register right away, and, and it certainly hasn't registered for me right away. This is so simple that even a five-year-old can repeat this. And so profound that people that have walked with Christ their whole life cannot get over how deep this command is. A new command I give you. Why is this so important? Friends, what's going to happen in the next few hours, in the next few days, in the next few weeks? It's going to be really difficult. And Jesus is thinking about them and saying, I want you to love one another, not just me. I want you to love one another because it's a package deal. Love me, love my disciples. You can't pick and choose. You can't separate and say, I like you, but I don't like your people. Love one another. Profound. Have you ever been loved by someone who loved you like Jesus had loved them? Have you ever gone through something like that? You know, one of the three things we ask people to do as part of fighting shallow Christianity here is love one another. And we say love one another by being part of a life group, a small group. Make sure you're in a band with some other believers that walk alongside of each other. Did you know that in the last two weeks, one of our life groups had to walk up to a casket and to a cemetery with one of their members and walk alongside of his widow and they're learning how to love one another in the midst of this chaos. And they are learning how to love one another. And I'll tell you this, Jesus is a genius. What makes it a new command? It's new in two ways at least. One, it's object. Jesus had, had knew the Old Testament was clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. But he changed the object. Not just love your neighbor, love one another. Friends, we need to learn how to love one another, and you can't do that in a big room like this, but we can do it in smaller groups. The other thing that was different is the measure. He says, love one another as I have loved you. How much did he love us, friends? He loved us this much. And I don't know about you, but that makes it more challenging than just loving my neighbor as myself. If I need to love one another as he has loved me, wow, that's incredible. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, one of the things I want you to notice is that Jesus knows what he's talking about. He uses this phrase three times, and I've listed it there in the notes. I tell you the truth. 
And I'm going to ask our artist to come out, Diane. Some of you know Diane, and she's going to be painting, so you're going to be tempted to only pay attention to painting. That's okay, but if you can kind of like, every once in a while, look back up here and act like you're listening, that would help a lot. But she's going to paint some chaos. And she's going to do something that I hope will help drive this point home that we're now making. And that is that Jesus says three times in this passage, I tell you the truth. In a world where everything starts unraveling and we don't know who to trust anymore, who is telling the truth? Who's lying? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And if you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is that this actual words that have been translated in some of our translations, I tell you the truth, while they capture the full weight and the meaning of what Jesus is saying, it's not literally what he said. What literally he said was, amen, amen. The word we have for amen, amen. And he says it doubly. And John's gospel is the only one that shows this double saying of Jesus. And it's, it's an incredible way of showing Jesus' authority. Some of your Bible translations are translated this way. Truly, truly, I say to you. Some of yours are verily, verily, surely, surely, truly, I say to you. It's got that whole idea. The idea is the word amen, if you're following along in the notes, means surely, for certain, firm, like a rock. It means true. It means certain, for sure. And Jesus, what he's saying is, let me tell you some things that are absolutely certain. They're not only going to happen, but they're true, even when they don't look like they're true. And Jesus said these things. I want to just mention to you on the back of your notes, I've listed these I tell you the truth passages. If you look at the bottom, you'll see there are all 25 references in John's gospel to this double amen, this amen. And by the way, in church families sometimes, we say amen in services. Or you've been in a service when someone yelled, amen, to help a pastor who wasn't doing so good, so he'd keep going, okay? And the truth is, we don't know what amen means when we say it at the end of prayers. We think it means the end. But it doesn't mean the end. It means that's true. May it be so. I affirm that. And so when we say amen together, Christians would often do that. They would say, that's right. That's true. And so what we're going to see here, if you turn your notes back over, is that Jesus tells the truth even when it's painful and hard to accept. One of the things about Jesus that's so incredible is that he doesn't say, it's going to get better. It's going to be easy. He never says that. In fact, one of the references I have out to the right there, John 16, 33, he says, I have told you these things ahead of time, so you'll know this. In this world, you will have trouble. People will hate you when you follow me, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he's telling the disciples, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. Notice this. He also says this, so you can have total confidence in me, the great I am, if you're following along. Remember verse 19 there at the top? I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. He's saying, I want you, I'm going to tell you the truth right now when your souls are in anguish, when you're so confused, so you can have total confidence in me, the great I am. What does that mean? What does he mean, the great I am? Do you remember this as we've been studying John? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. He's going to say it again next week. Friends, here's the thing. Every time he said that, 
he was telling people that he was more than just a man. In fact, if you've never seen this before, Exodus 3 up here, uh, look at these verses. 2,000 years before, Moses was asked by God to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. He's not real jazzed about this idea. You know, at the burning bush? And say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am, I always was, I always will be. I am the God who makes things happen. Jesus is saying, I was the one at the bush to talk to Moses. And now I am the one in this room talking to you. And I came in human flesh so you would know I understand what you're going through. And I will tell you the truth always. You can bank on it. You can take it to the bank. I tell you the truth. Praise God. Amen. So here's how we can learn from this encounter. This may not be where you're at yet, but this is what you can resolve today. Come what may, I will lean on Jesus and live out his words. Come what may, just like John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaned on Jesus. I will do that, and I will live out his words. How do we do this today? Some of you know I'm a proud person. I am a self-promotional person. I'm a self-led person still too many times, but I'm learning. I'm learning to walk with Jesus, and I'm learning that I cannot trust myself or my read on things. I cannot trust other people, ultimately. I have to decide to lean on Jesus and believe what he says is true. Other people may fail me. I may fail me, but Jesus will never fail. His words will always be true. And so some of you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 up here on the screen. You notice what's going on when it says this? I love this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean what? Lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't mean you don't ever think. It just means don't ultimately lean all your weight on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, submit to him, and he will direct your paths. How do we do that nowadays? You know, when I get up early in the morning sometimes, I just lay my head on the mattress there as I kneel on the floor and I just go, Lord, I want to lean on you. I want to acknowledge you. And when I pause to pray any time during the day, I'm going to picture myself leaning against you. Independence. Show me your words are faithful. They're true. And then show me how to live out your words that every person I meet all day long, show me how to love them as you've loved me. Teach me. It's changed my whole life. It's changed my whole life. Peter, what did he do every time he heard the rooster crow? <laughs> you know, that's the bad news when Jesus decides to use a bird that's everywhere. What was that sound again? So when he heard that sound, he'd go, failure. I'm a failure. Or could he go, Jesus can be trusted. When I trust myself, denial. When I trust him, he will help me. And eventually, Peter would lay his life down for Jesus and follow him all the way to the end. He became a leader in the church because he truly loved Jesus more than being a fake. And you and I can do the same. So, we're going to sing a song as well as see what happens when we trust Jesus. 
He will never lie to you. And maybe a good way to spend some time this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow morning is to look over those verses. I tell you the truth and see which ones stand out for you or which ones you find yourself stopping at to ponder. I want to ask the prayer team to come down front. They're always down here any Sunday, by the way. There may be some Sundays they could really be a person for you, a man or a woman in our team to pray with you. You know, maybe you're in chaos right now. Maybe it's night. And you can't see very easily. And you just need someone to say, please tell me that Jesus tells the truth. We'd be glad to pray with you. Some of you, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have never trusted Christ. You need to be born again of his spirit and let what Jesus did on the cross for you be the gift God gives you today. Some of you may have other things you want to pray about. Let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray that no matter where any person in this room finds himself today, help them move further along with you. Help them to lean on you, to lean into you, to trust you. And as they do, show us how to be a church family that loves one another as you have loved us. Teach us. We're not perfect followers of yours, we know. Teach us how to love each other. Thank you for Diane and what she showed us through art. Now show us in life. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.